was an absolute shock. I wasn't in any sort of position where I would have known that something like this would happen. It was a house invasion. The Dark Seed, a harrowing tale of rape in which South African native Lily Reed tells a story of being gang-raped in her Malawi home. Growing up in Malawi for five years, from her birth in 1979 to the end of 1984, Lily was hooked on the beauty of Malawi, her opening words vividly recalling the imagery of Lake Malawi, the touch of Malawi culture, and the warm embrace of an enchanting Africa. Despite attending nine different schools in five South African provinces, by the time she was 11 years old, a young Lily vowed to return to her beloved Malawi and was determined to fulfill her promise of assisting in the alleviation of the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the sub-Saharan nation. She started her quest in 1997 by venturing to the United Kingdom with only £300 to her name. Marrying her first husband in 2001, she subsequently embarked on a bachelor's degree in psychology, which was supplemented by diplomas in HIV program management, care and alternative medicine. Despite attempts to build a home in 2004, she separated from her husband. She returned to Malawi, where she volunteered as an HIV community educator and English teacher at a local school. Officially divorcing upon her return to London at the age of 25, Lily found herself trapped in a Western culture within which she regarded herself a foreigner. But her sense of unrest was quickly transformed with the birth of her daughter, Emma. Returning to South Africa in 2009, she quickly succumbed to her calling and with her daughter in hand, returned to Monkey Bay, Lalongwe, Malawi in 2012. She soon developed a deep connection with a man, Martin, and his nine-year-old son, Alex. Some two months later, the event that altered the course of her life occurred. I sat down with Lily Reed as she discussed the unfolding of the home invasion. A reminder that this feature contains sensitive content. When I got to my first kind of lodge on, uh, at Monkey Bay, um, that was the first time I saw the lake, right? So my daughter and I had gone, we had set up camp at Monkey Bay, and uh, during my stay there, I had found somebody that I, I fell deeply in love with and he also had a son so we kind of started being like a family where we were like a traveling circus you know and we would go to each of his businesses so it was so much fun you know it was something completely different and I, I needed to get to Lalongri I started getting like itchy feet I want to put some roots down now and not travel so much and I wanted to start this NGO so we found a lodge. Lodges there are basically like big B&Bs and it was split into two pieces. So there was one that I could start the NGO from and there was the lodge that could then sustain it, you know, so it was like a sustainability plan. And we had only been there a couple of weeks. Lots of people coming and going. I hadn't been back down to the lake again. I picked up typhoid. That lodge was in Lalongwe and it was on the edge of the town. 
so it was quite far away from any of the hustle and bustle but it had like six foot walls it had electric fencing all around it um, big locked gates we had a security guard on the premises because we were buying a lot of equipment we had a chef in Malawi there's a, a different type of way that you live you know and there was a chef there um, on site because we were getting clients in that wanted food and then we had a guy who was kind of like my assistant manager and all three of them were, were living on the premises all Malawians basically my partner left for the night so it was just myself and the two kids at the time Alex the little boy he was about nine and my daughter Emma was six and I just finished with a bunch of friends at the bar we were you know doing stock check and doing marketing plans and they all left and the security guard locked up and the chef went to bed and the assistant manager went off to bed but he had been acting really strange that night I thought he was drunk because he was running around without a t-shirt on he was demanding cigarettes just odd behavior for him but I just ignored it and the kids were already sleeping and then I was standing at the bathroom and I was brushing my teeth. This is about half past 11 at night. Light is on and I'm looking out at the moon. I hear like shouting and there's like a big courtyard outside and I look outside the bathroom window and I see the assistant manager running shirtless still with a panga. And he's shouting and shouting and he's running down the side of the house. And I thought, jeez, what has this guy been drinking, man? He's like going mad tonight. And then I see another guy running. And I thought, jeez, man, are they... I thought that they were trying to catch the goat. We had a goat called Christmas because we were having the goat for Christmas. <laughs> we we're going to try and fatten this goat up. And I thought, oh, man, they, they're trying to catch this goat. They're going to eat the goat tonight. And then suddenly a whole lot of men came around the corner. There must have been at least six, eight of them. And right outside my bathroom window, I quickly switched off the light, you know, I knew something was going down. Right outside the bathroom window, they got the security guard on the floor and I just saw this panga like in the moonlight shining and just start hacking at this guy. And that's when I knew this is about to begin. I find it quite interesting that you're describing something that for most people would be traumatic, mm -hmm. even preceding the actual incident that happened mm -hmm. to you, and you were able to remember the goat. Yeah, <laughs> cold Christmas, yeah. <laughs> After the attack, we took that goat back down to Monkey Bay, so <laughs> she stayed with us for quite a while. Yeah. So what about the goat makes you smile? It makes me smile because it was the first time I had to explain to my daughter that the goat was going to be eaten. So it was a good, it was a funny memory. And then the goat had also, that we traveled with the goat afterwards. I felt like this goat had been part of the trauma. So the goat had to come with us and to travel with the goat and a bucky and two kids and all your baggage and everything down to the beach. The goat came on this journey with us. And the event or the incident itself, mm. how did that happen? When I saw them starting to hack the security guard, I knew something was going to happen, that this wasn't just like some drunken night or something. I was super alert. I knew exactly what was going to happen. Well, not exactly, but I knew something was up. So I'd switched off the light already. I ran and I closed the bedroom door and I locked it. And I went back into the bathroom. I dialed my partner, but he didn't answer. So then I dialed the landlord of the place because I knew he was in Lolongwe and he was still sleeping and I just said, Kanye, Kanye, something's happening, something's happening, please send somebody to help us. And by that stage I could hear they were breaking into the house. I could just hear smashing windows and smashing doors and lots of male voices and I thought, geez, like this is more than I thought. I thought it might be one or two and if I lock the door everything will be okay, you know. 
And then I just started realizing that this is way more than I had anticipated. And I looked back at the kids, they were still sleeping on the bed, and I could hear these guys coming down the passageway. This is a matter of minutes. And before I knew it, they had crashed through the door with a massive rock. I'd switched off the lights in the bedroom, so everything was dark, and I just jumped back onto this double bed. And I was lying on my back, and I just covered the kids, and I just started shouting, I've got children, I've got children. I just thought maybe they would stop but they didn't stop. The kids then woke up because they just started shouting as soon as they came into the room. I could just see and smell. The smell was sweat and alcohol, like really foreign smells. And all I could see were these white eyes and these white teeth, um, you know, just coming through the door. And there were just more of them and more of them. There wasn't, it wasn't just one or two. I had no chance. I just wanted to save the kids. The first two guys came up to me and they were swearing at me and had me around the throat and started asking me for money. Um, and I was saying, I don't have money, I don't have money. Please, please, just leave the children, leave the children. So my daughter is now standing on the bed next to me, trying to hold on to me. And uh, the guy's already ripping off my pants and uh, he started sexually assaulting me at that point. Um, By sexually assaulting you, you mean he was raping He was raping me, but not with his penis at that point. Um, and I just shouted for the kids to run. I just said, run, babies, hide, just run. I was already pinned down on the bed. So they jumped off the bed, and I'm trying to strain now to see where they're going. Um, and they ran first into the bathroom, then they came out, and then little Alex, he speaks fluent Chichewa, which is the local language in Malawi, and he was trying to negotiate with them. These massive, huge men. He just stood up to them, talking off in Chichewa, what do you want? Obviously telling him that they want money, and uh, he was trying to negotiate with them. So he found the wallet and his wallet on the table, and he was giving them wallets, and uh, I was just screaming at him to run. I was like, babies, run, run, hide. So they ran out the room, and as Emma went, and then as Alex went around, this huge guy with his punga just went for him. As he swung, he missed Alex's head by like an inch. Like many victims of rape, Lily internally focused on ensuring the safety of her children. So they started raping me on the bed. I say they because there were two that were really on me all the time and there were others that were holding me down. And how many were together? Twelve. Yeah, that I counted. What is going through your mind at the time? Whatever I can do to save these kids, you know, and where's the money? What money do they want? What can I give them to get them away from me? How can I negotiate? Um, condom negotiation, like things that I'd learned, that I'd been teaching women. It's, it just kind of, it all went through my mind, you know. I also just thought, I went through like a moment of self-blame, like, you know, if I didn't come to Malawi, this wouldn't have happened. Oh, like, how's Emma going to get through this stuff? What's Alex going to do? Oh my God, are they dead already, you know? If they did, I'm killing one of these guys. Like, I just, I went through so many things. Like, oh, I'm such a loser. Oh, I'm just, uh, just like a lot of obviously anxiety but quick thoughts and then they were dragging me through the house by my hair you know in each room I said to them in the office in the office there were these big coins that we had found in one of the cupboards which were really old Malawian coins so they looked expensive but it was only like one cent and I thought okay if I can get them to the office I can maybe distract them so they had really broken into the office it was completely trashed and by that stage I'm, I'm naked and I was just already covered in blood I must have looked an absolute nightmare. And they had me in the office and they kept asking, where's the money in the cooler box? 
and I couldn't pick it up from the, the thick accent. You know, I couldn't pick up what this cooler box was. Like, what's a cooler box? And why would there be money in there? Like, and I say to them, we don't have customers. There's no money exchanging hands here. I was trying to think how to get them away from me. Despite the violent rape that she endured, in this discussion, Lily really focuses on her own suffering. You don't feel any pain. Your adrenaline is so high that you feel no pain. I mean, first thing on the bed, when the first guy, I called him the dark one, he had very thick, dry hands. And when he inserted them into my vagina, it was very painful because obviously I'm not ready for sex and, you know, my body wasn't ready for this and I was all clamped up and so he really was very forceful. Um, I remember the dryness of his fingers going inside me. He hit me a couple of times on the bed, which just was a shock. You know, I didn't feel pain as such. It's like, you know, it was just more shocking. But then he was groping at my breasts a lot, and that was painful. But his hands were so dry. I just remember his hands being so rough on my body. And also thinking, like, this is not a sexual act. This is just being violent towards me. This has got nothing to do with sex. He doesn't want to have sex with me, but he kept telling me he did. At all times, I thought that they were going to stop. I didn't realize how far they were going to go during the night. It did hurt when I was being pulled by my hair down the passageway, you know, so I was obviously holding onto my hair as they pulled me. But it's the last thing you think about because the pain doesn't matter. Um, you're thinking more about your children and if you can save them and what you're going to do next just to get these guys away. And it's happening quickly. I mean, this is not like, it doesn't take hours and hours. This is happening quick, quick, quick. So when they had me in the office, one, they hit me in the head with an ax. That was not painful. I didn't feel a thing. It was just shocking. What I felt was the blood coming down and filling up my eye. And I knew when I touched my head, I was just going, he hit me with an ax. My own ax, like I knew exactly. It was a sharp one. It was the new one. It was the silver little one. The one guy, he hit me with a lead pipe and I knew I'd broken my arm, but it wasn't painful. You just instinctively know my arm's broken. When they held me over the desk, they put me on my stomach and bent me over the desk. Yes, it was painful, but I just wanted it over and done with. You know, I just thought, just let them get it done, let them finish, don't fight. Um, I couldn't stop my body from moving involuntarily though. My body was fighting it off anyway, clamping up, you're trying to close your legs, you like, your head sore, your, your parts of your body sore while they're pulling you around because it's not gracefully done. So you've got one guy pulling you this way, another guy pulling you that way. How many of them left your these 12 men? At least six, at least. But I say all 12 because they all watched. They all watched. They had me sit down on my haunches and stuck things inside me. You know, I think it was a bottle, but I actually passed out. I passed out and then I know that other things happened at that point, but I, I still can't remember. Um, I passed out when he stuck something in me. The one guy had his penis in my face. I was sitting on a couch and they were all watching. They were all drinking and smoking. And the one guy had his, his penis and everything in my face here and another guy was holding my legs up like this and then as I was trying to move my face away from having his penis in my face trying to get it in my mouth I saw the dark one just laughing and he came running at me and then he just stabbed something into my vagina and that's when I passed out and I woke up again back near the office but judging from all the blood that was in the lounge and how it was in different places my blood obviously a lot of stuff happened there but I can't remember and for how many hours did this count? This was only an hour. 
the entire audience. Yep. What goes through you when you talk about this? Anxiety. I get anxiety. I get very anxious. I've learned to speak about it and you know through writing the book and everything I've learned to relive that experience. I do get a bit panicked when I'm in the moment and then I kind of come out of the moment again and I'm me, you know, it was a moment in time. It is a moment. I'm strong otherwise. I'm strong now speaking about it. You know, I'm out the other side. It's been hard, but everything's okay. She details her escape. I think the landlord had phoned a friend of mine one of the friends who had left earlier that night and he arrived first on the scene another malawian man and he arrived on the scene with one of his big dogs and then i heard a gunshot go off and then there was just more men and i didn't realize who they were but it was the military police that the landlord had bought but it took them over an hour to get there and they were only 3 kilometers away there's more questions than answers with a lot of these things throughout her ordeal Lily ensured the safety of her children. Alex and Emma, well, they were there the whole time. I was hiding them in different places. I was hiding them in the bathroom, then they would find us, then I would move them to another bedroom. So every time these guys left me alone, I would rush to go and see where they were and try and hide them somewhere. I wanted to get them to a place that they had already ransacked so that they didn't go back to that same space. So we ended up in a very back room where the chef had been sleeping and I hid them under a bed there. Um and that's when the military police came. But I was still naked and then there was just you know we were walking out you know me with these two little kids just covered in blood completely naked in front of all these people as we got out of the house it was really cold and it and just the the cold air hitting us I just was saying to them it's over it's over everything's okay it's over. and i looked them up and down like a thousand times just to see if there was anything on them emma tells me now when she got to a friend of ours house because i went off to the hospital and we dropped them off at the house that she looked in the mirror and she just saw herself covered in blood but it was my blood i don't even remember seeing her with any blood i was just like looking over are you hurt or you hurt did they touch you and they were fine you know they just obviously seen and heard all of the stuff going on Why did you think that they didn't hurt even Alex or Emma? Alex overheard them speaking and he heard them say let's get the children out now then she'll tell us where the money is. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of time before they had gone for the kids. They were using the kids as leverage. After years of contemplating the incident, Lily remains uncertain about the motive of the attack. You know the only thing that I can think of is that assistant manager he was implicated in the whole thing i think that he overheard the landlord and i talking about either the potential that the place could make because 2 million kwacha is not a lot in rands eh but it's a lot in kwacha i don't know where the cooler box came from i have no idea there were a lot of people in and out that house in those last 2 weeks some of the guys were gardeners that were caught the assistant manager was one of the ones who we know let everybody in because he had the keys and no locks were broken so i think he had overheard something and it just spun into an out of control rumor that we had money on the premises it was found that he was living next to a gangster and that he had contacted the gangster to organize this hit he had told them about the 2 million kwacha in the cooler box and he was found running away from the scene with my laptop so he was implicated in it and i testified against him and so yeah. when you watched your self being raped he was there he was there yeah do you remember making any eye contact with him no i only saw him afterwards when he was in handcuffs yeah 
And when you saw him, what was that like? I was shocked. I wondered first why you're in handcuffs because I, I didn't know that he was part of it. Um, and then I thought, shame, he's cold because he still had no T-shirt on. Um, and he was looking at me with these big doggy doe eyes, you know, like, help me. And then I found out only later that he had been caught stealing stuff. In her quest to seek justice, Lily's bid to see the process through was met with disappointment. Well, in a country that doesn't have much of a legal system going, it seemed kind of pointless. The only reason I really did it was because I knew I had to see the process through. I wanted a fight. I wanted to know that I had done everything that I could to bring about justice. It was very disappointing, very confrontational and aggressive. There's no support for victims there. When you compare it to South Africa, it's, it's similar to what happens in South Africa, definitely, but it's a lot more rural out there. There's no victim support. There's no policeman that you can go and speak to. There's no counselling. And, you know, it was only because of my position there as an ex-Malawian who had family and friends still in the country that I was able to get the help that I got. But pretty much the court system I had to do on my own. I had to gather my own evidence. I had to go and take photographs and have them printed to show the evidence. I had to go to a private doctor so that he could do the medical examination and gather my belongings for fingerprints and present it to a state prosecutor who could then do it on my behalf. The day of the court hearing, I was literally not even a meter away from them. I was walked into this very dark room and as I walked in I turned to my left and the assistant manager was standing right here. He could have spat on me. He was so close. And then there was a row of three other guys going down and as soon as I saw them I just recognized each one because I'd named every single one that I could while the attack was happening. And I looked and said, oh, that's the gardener. Oh, that's that other one. Oh, that's that other one. So I had to give my testimony with them staring at me from like a meter away. What goes through someone's mind when they're doing that and they're basically defending themselves? I was defending myself and trying to convince this judge that I'd been raped. I have no idea the outcome. They don't tell you. I was never contacted again. I told my testimony and that was it. I waited and waited. I phoned. Mm. Nothing happened that I know of. What do you want to have happen to them? <clears throat> you know, I really don't care. Honestly, people do ask me that. Have I got anger? Have I got resentment? Do I want to get something back? They took everything. They took everything. What happens to them, I think it's different because I'm not going to see them again. If it happened that they weren't convicted and that they were here in South Africa in my own hometown, then yes, I would have made damn sure that they were locked away. But then I could rely more on the South African system. Well, <laughs> I would hope there would be, you know, I know that I would be able to get a lawyer or, you know, have an NGO behind me or something. But I left the country and it was really out of my hands. I'm helpless. I'm absolutely helpless. Approaching three medical facilities in the early hours of the morning, Lily was refused assistance and ARVs. My landlord picked me up and the kids up from the house. Dropped the kids off at a friend's house because I needed urgent medical attention um, and they were okay physically. So we drove to Kamuzu Banda Central Hospital, which is where I was born, and they refused to help me. One said I was a racist, another one said they weren't going to serve me, they were just laughing at me. Why did they say you were racist? 
what happened was I walked into the first trauma center, as they called it, trauma, and I sat there, and the one doctor, oh, he left me for ages just sitting there. He was just doing paperwork. I mean, I must have looked like I'd come from a bus accident, and um, the security guard and the chef were both sitting with me, and the security guard had, like, pung it in his head, and he was just bleeding to death. I've only got a T-shirt on. I'm completely exposed. They didn't even care about our dignity. Like, we weren't human beings. You know, they didn't put a curtain around nothing. The nurse started scrubbing at my face where the axe had gone in. Uh, no anesthetic, nothing. Not even a word to me. All I kept saying to him was that I need ARVs. I need ARVs. I knew that 72 hours, I need ARVs. I can live with anything except for HIV. And he said, I can't help you. You need to go to the maternity ward. So... After he had scrubbed my face and he did some stitches, I got up off the table. I tried to help my my staff members who had been sitting there. And then I walked outside and we didn't really know where to go. So we walked through this empty hospital, um, absolutely nothing going on, no lights, nothing. Got to the maternity ward, walked in, and the nurses just looked at me and just started laughing. I had quite a few friends there at that time, Malawian, Canadian. There was a French girl with me. And uh, we were just demanding our rights, you know, like, we, I need ARVs, you need to help her out, you know, have you got a towel, like, anything like that. They were just not interested. So my Canadian friends had a Malawian uh, partner, and so he went in to try and negotiate with them. So finally a doctor came out and said, fine, you know, we'll see her. And I went into a little consult room and it was this... And he said, I said, please, I just need the ARVs. I've been raped and I just want the ARVs. And he said, where's your police report? I said, I'm sorry, I don't have a police report. I came straight from being raped. Like, I'm, I'm here, ARVs are more important. And he says, I'm not helping you because you don't have a police report. And I just lost it. And I just said, fine, I don't need any of you touching me anyway. You know, like, I'm out of here. And he said, you see, you're a racist. I was so like flabbergasted, you know, it's shock after shock after shock. And you're just like, where does race come into this? Where on earth does race come into this? I mean, aren't you a human being looking at another human being who has been hit in the face with an axe, who has been gang raped, who is clearly in the gutter that actually needs her life saving here? And you want to take this opportunity to say that I'm a racist because you're refusing to help me. Um, so I stood up and I left. And I walked out and uh, my friends were trying to phone the head of the, um, of the hospital, they were trying to phone the head of gynecology, they were trying to phone the Minister of Health, you know, they were all trying their best to get me some help. And I just sat in the gutter with a t-shirt on, blood running down my face, my legs, out of every orifice you can imagine because they anally raped me as well. And just looking at the clock and just thinking, I don't have much time. I need to get this, these ARVs. And I felt like a dog dying in the gutter. Um, nothing was happening. And, you know, by this time the adrenaline has rushed out my body, so I'm freezing cold, you know. There's still... <laughs> and so a friend of mine said, okay, there's another hospital down the road, let's go. So we got into the car. This is about like now three, four in the morning. So we'd been waiting at this hospital for like three hours. We get in the car, go to the next hospital, walk in in the same state and sit down. I say to the doctor, I'm very calm now. I'm like, I'm going to be as nice as I possibly can. Hello, doctor. I've just been raped. I would like to get some ARVs, please. And he said, no. 
And I said, why? And he said, because this is going to go to court and I don't want to be involved in court. I don't have the time. Please leave. This would go to court because it was a gang death? Because it was a rape and because I was a tourist in the country and it was going to be big and he could see that. You know, this wasn't a local woman who didn't know her rights, you know, that it was just going to go away. And he took one look at me and said no and out you go. So uh, we stood outside in the parking lot and we phoned the 24-hour clinic and she refused to help. She didn't want to open her doors. All the doors were closed. So I just went home. While her worst fear was to contract HIV, Lily was, however, infected with at least five strains of human papilloma virus. I only found out much later that I'd been infected with the human papillomavirus. I think there's like 35 or 36 strains of human papillomavirus, which is known as HPV, and it's sexually transmitted. Some do nothing to you, others cause infertility, other strains of it cause genital warts, and other strains of them cause cervical cancer. And I got five different strains, so at least five men raped me, I know that, and I got all five that cause cancer. And you call it the anniversary? The anniversary of the attack, that's what I call it, yeah. Because it changed my path in life so dramatically. And I grew so much as a person because of it. And I learned humility. And I learned what being hopeful really meant. And I learned gratitude for things. Parts of you die and parts of you live. The parts of you that live you really hold on to. Lily asserts that rape is not isolated to one particular race group. I really don't think race has anything to do with rape. They were 12 black men, I was a white woman. I don't think the color of my skin changed the fact that I had a vagina and that they thought that being violent to me as a woman was satisfying them in some way. Um, I doubt I was the first and I doubt I was the last. And you probably find they, I was maybe the first white woman that they had done it to, but how many black women had they done it to before? Or Indian women they had done it to before? It's got nothing to do with race. White men rape, black men rape, Indian men rape. The rapists do, not all men. And I don't want to make it a political thing because it isn't. I don't want to make it a race thing. It's not, it's a gender issue. It's an issue that men have that ability to do that to a woman more so than a woman has to do to a man. And rape is about defiling, degrading, and hurting another person as much as you possibly can get away with. Given the understanding of rape with a distinction made in the level of violence associated with the act, Lily says rape is rape. I think one of the worst things I've heard another woman say to me so far is that, oh, I was raped, but it wasn't like yours. It's not as bad as yours. And I thought, geez, like, it's not degrees of rape. Remember, rape is rape. It's the degrees of violence that go along with it. And so you can't compare one rape with another rape and say that, oh, but that one wasn't as bad. They're all just as bad. It's all a violation. It happens everywhere. If the violence had to have happened without the rape itself, would you have remembered the incident differently? Well, it would be a whole new memory, hey? I would have been like, oh, thank God they didn't rape me. <laughs> you know, they hit me in the head with an axe and they broke my arm and they da-da-da-da, but thank God they didn't rape me. You know, I think I still would have felt as violated because my body was still, 
was still beaten. I was still treated like a non-human being to be able to do that. When I look at how one human being can do that to another, I always think about if I have to raise my hand to another person, there are so many instances, seconds, milliseconds, that I've got an opportunity to go, okay, stop. Okay, stop now, you know, so I might slap you and then I go, ooh, okay, that was enough. And then I, I slap you again, I think, oh God, that, okay, that was enough. These men didn't have those filters. They wanted to murder me. I know that if the police hadn't arrived there, we would have all been dead. They were there to torture. And it happens in South Africa every single day. I'm just talking about it. Four months after the ordeal, Lily left her partner, Martin. He became quite violent. He started drinking a lot. It wasn't a conducive space for healing for me. It wasn't good for the kids either. And I needed to get out of Malawi. So I stayed on for about four months and it just, it just became really bad. I wasn't safe anymore. We had been together only two months when this attack happened. I didn't really know the man. I was in love, I was infatuated. It was like this holiday romance. The warts and everything hadn't come out yet. And when the attack happened, all the warts came out all at once. As many victims of sexual abuse recount, Lily's partners struggled to deal with what had happened to her, consequently establishing continued emotional abuse within her home, the place she should have found comfort. It depended on his mood. You know, sometimes very, very distant. Other times he cried. Um, he was just really angry. But not at the right people. Did you feel that you needed to be strong for him? Yes, 100%. I had to be strong for him all the time and pretend things weren't happening and take his moods on all the time. He said some awful, awful things to me that no one else would want me because blacks had sex with me or raped me. It turned into quite a abusive relationship. He would throw me out of the house. He would threaten that I couldn't see Alex, his real son. He would take away my stuff. He would hide my passport. But he was the only thing that I had. I held on to him for dear life. I didn't care what he did. I just wanted somebody who could just make all the decisions for me all the time. I just couldn't cope with with making any decision at all. I was floating away in some other space. I was not grounded at all. Very often when these incidents happen, or similar incidents, mm. a woman unable to be comfortable in the bedroom space, and this can last for years. Yeah. Were you able to with Martin? As soon as I knew that I was clear, as much as possible, I said to him, you know, I don't want this to affect me. I want to have a normal sex life and I want to know that you are going to be okay with that. I think if his reaction had been different, I would have been quite messed up today sexually. I think if he had rejected me and said no, I would have gone into that, I'm dirty, I'm unlovable. But he said no, that's fine. You know, we used a condom and we started our sex life probably about a month. I was really messed up down there, so I couldn't really interact. But, you know, we slowly got into it. But other things were happening as well. I thought that I had gonorrhea. I wasn't sure. There was so many side effects from the ARVs, and there was just loads of stuff happening to my body. So we took it very, very slowly. And it was more towards November, December that we really started having sex again. Um, and as a result of that, I fell pregnant. Before you get to the pregnancy, mm. if you could just tell me a bit about 
the first time after the incident? Do you remember the emotions you went through, the emotions you went through after? I remember, yeah. I felt like I owed this guy the world because he was willing to have sex with me again after that. And I fell in love with him. I fell into debt with him. I was so grateful that he would treat me well and have sex with me and still treat me the way that he did before. Even though there was a lot of other stuff going on and it was starting to get violent and abusive, in the bedroom, he still wanted me. And he acted in the same way. And he didn't run off and wash himself. He still was sexually attracted to me. And that helped with my self-esteem a lot. So I do remember, you know, the first time it was soft and it was gentle and it was loving. And I do remember lots and lots of flashbacks. Like, you know, it was in my mind. My mind was going berserk. It was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, just flashback, flashback, smells. Is it this? I've got this thing with smells now. Um, but it was as, as lovely as you could hope for it to be. But I had to struggle with my mind a lot. Didn't want to close my eyes, just had to keep my eyes open. Then didn't want to open my eyes, just wanted to close them. I was just like, wow, my head was spinning. And it still happens today. Do you have a way that you deal with it? Medication. I'm on an anti-anxiety um, and I'm on an antidepressant. Certain flowers set me off, you know, if it smells of Malawi. Fish eagles, mm. the cry of a fish eagle. Um, and we've got two fish eagles in the valley that I live in, weirdly. Mm. You know, they, they only come from, from up in Africa. Mm. Yeah, I've got to calm myself down a lot. After her ordeal, Lily reached another breaking point, the loss of her and her partner's unborn child. When I got back from Malawi in December of 2012, um, I realized I was pregnant mm. and when I was about four months pregnant I had a miscarriage so I think it was from all those ARVs I was getting iron transfusions all sorts of stuff and lots of medication obviously I couldn't hold on to the baby so I lost that one when I found out that I was pregnant I thought that that was my whole reason for being I thought if anything at least one good thing has come out of this, you know. I've got this child, and as much as I don't want Martin, and I don't need him as a father, I raised my first one by myself without a father, so I can do it again. And I just, I was so ecstatic that I thought, I'm just going to cling on to this for dear life. And uh, so, yeah, I was sitting at a friend's house, and I just felt this, like, wetness come out. And I thought, What? and went to the loo and literally, I mean, it was like half a liter of blood just came out onto the floor in the bathroom. And I just started calling my friend and we went to the hospital and yeah, I gave birth to this. I, I can only describe it as that because you go through labor pains and you have to push out your placenta with the baby in it. I was angry at my body for not, for not holding onto the baby. Um, and then I was just lonely. The one thing that the attack did was just take away all my dreams. I hadn't thought of anything my whole life past getting to Malawi and starting that charity and helping other people. So it was like I'd written this whole book about my life, not this book, in my head. And it was all scripted and I'd done everything. I mean, my degrees, my jobs. I'd worked in the NGO sector for like a decade by then. Everything I'd done was to get to Malawi and they took everything from me. Suddenly I was standing at an abyss and there was nothing. There was all just blank pages. And that's really daunting when you've been such a focused, determined person. You know exactly where you're going. And suddenly I'm there at 33 
And the only thing that I thought now gave me purpose was the baby, and the baby's gone. And I just didn't want to wake up again. And I just had to go home and... I just realized I didn't really have much ahead of me. It was a very dark moment. The first baby was called Tinley. Instantly, as soon as the baby was there and I knew I was pregnant, I, I named him Tinley. It was a combination of, of names that I put together that meant a lot to me at the time. So it was like two, two names together. Then Martin and I started speaking again and I told him about it. And I told him that Tinley had died and all of this. And um, he then came back to Cape Town. And he was only here for about a month before it started getting so abusive again that, you know, it just wasn't going to work. And I'd started to heal and I was, I'd made a lot of changes and I just kind of accepted that life wasn't going to be the same and that I had to make new dreams again. I just didn't know what those were. Well, one thing I did know, though, was that I wanted another baby. So when Martin came back, I fell pregnant. In poetic form, Lily learnt of a new pregnancy on the first anniversary of her rape. By the time I found out I was pregnant was actually the first anniversary of the attack, 23rd of August 2013. Martin had left already, I'd kicked him out the house, he had become very abusive, I told him to leave. So again, I went away by myself for a few days, travelled by myself and I went out far to Rebecca Castile and I sat in a little flat there on the night of the anniversary attack and I was like, whatever happens, happens. She says that following her ordeal, she now experienced a new sense of fearlessness. You become quite fearless after that. You know, you're like, well, the worst has happened. What can happen now? So you get that kind of false sense of security as well. Like I couldn't hit more rock bottom than this. So like the world, let's go. But anyway, so I went off and in the morning of the, the anniversary on the 23rd of August, I... Don't know why I thought it, but I thought, let me go get a pregnancy test. Lo and behold, two little lines came up, and I was so grateful. I just dropped, and I was just crying, and I was just like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. One, my body was working. Two, I had something to focus on. Three, I had hope. I was like, just suddenly like, wow, this is like, this is really happening. I didn't think that I would even be able to fall pregnant, honestly. I thought my body is so damaged now that I won't be able to fall pregnant. Plus, I'd just been told that by the gynae that I had HPV. Like, it was an absolute miracle. Lily reads Long Road to Mecca. Mecca came about because the birth was extremely difficult. In fact, he almost died and I almost died. And I was sitting in the hospital holding him and I hadn't named, had a name for him yet. And I just thought of the, the story, the long road to Mecca. The original story is the spiritual journey of someone who's retracing their steps. And it's like all the experiences that they have in order to find their spirituality and where they came from and what they're here for. And it's a really long road. And so I was looking at him and I was thinking, geez, what a road we've been on, dude, for you to come into this world. Like it's a long road to Mecca and he was like my Mecca. Muslims around the world, two billion people in the world turn five times a day. And so it's that same gratitude and awe and respect and everything that those two billion Muslims do every day, five times a day. And that's what I feel like for him. And Mecca also means the, the heart of a market. So there's so much bustling activity happening, but he's the actual heart of it all. He's like at the end of my story. That's how the book ended, is with the birth of Mecca. 
The dark seed is about the dark seed that the rapists leave in a woman's heart. If you're not really careful, if you don't pluck that dark seed out, it grows like a weed over a woman's heart and starts to give her all the side effects that you normally see with rape victims. It'll swallow her whole. And just remember that they don't just leave one seed. You've got to keep plucking out, opening the wound, filling it up with like fresh water and plant new flowers in its place to keep it growing and keep your hope and keep your dreams like alive. If you don't pluck out those dark seeds, it's going to strangle you. If I hadn't tended to that wound where the dark seeds were, I wouldn't have been able to have Mecca. In great detail, Lily Reed shares her painful experience, but to her, rape was only but a moment in her life journey. Her journey continues. I'm the sum of my soul's experience on this earth. This book is one part, and I hope to God it helps in whatever way it is meant to. I'm sure it's got a purpose, and people will take different things out of it that they need. Who knows what I'm going to be next year? I'm still writing my script for my future. For VOC News, I'm Zakiradesai.